You're him, and I'm him, with your heart and my heart awake in the dream, in the dream of romance and delight. Can it be that tonight is the night? Ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. devoted to honoring and deconstructing the world of classic cinema. I'm Kristen Lopez here once again with... Drea Clark. And Samantha Ellis is once again here in spirit. She's not with us today, but she will be back next episode. But on our road to 100 episodes, we are joined by a very special guest once again. We have the amazing director, all-around classic film maven, Ms. Anna Biller. Anna, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you so much for dropping in to chat with us. You suggested an episode about Marlena Dietrich, and I'm so excited that we all get to be tough-talking women talking about one of the tough-talking women of classic cinema. So it's a treat. But Anna, for people who don't know your work, you know, you most people, I think, know you for The Love Witch, which is a beautiful, amazing movie that is fantastic if you haven't seen it. We heartily recommend it. But for you, I know you you bring a lot of classic film influence into your work. Can you talk about bringing old Hollywood into the movies that you've made? Yeah, well, you know, my production design is very meticulous, which, you know, all of the old, you know, classic movies had. And, and I'm very interested in the, in the kind of part they use and the kind of, you know, filters and gauzes and everything on, on the actresses. And so we do, you know, I do that with my DPs. I try to talk to them about that and try to make the, all the actresses look like stars with, you know, optimal glamour. And, you know, we shoot, we were using a boom microphone, which is what they used to use. Not, not so much clip-on mics unless we have to, which makes it so that the mic is further away from the actor, so they actually really have to project. So it actually changes the acting style a little bit, makes it so the actors have to have these nice, loud, projecting voices, which sounds a little weird today when everybody's whispering all the time in movies. So people think it's a weird acting style, but it's actually a classic movie acting style. It's Presentational, and you know, I also like to get into um, the hair and makeup, especially in the Love Witch. I got really, I got a really good uh, makeup artist, and she did this amazing hair and makeup on my lead actress. And it's all about creating like this glamour and aura and mystique. I was like to say that I would always do a style that had to do with glamour. I'm interested in other styles as well. But I think a lot of what I take from classic movies in my work is is really just the idea of creating an actress that's a star. I'm really interested in that. And also, I think just making everything, all the decisions, the visual decisions and the sound and music decisions, very, very specific and deliberate. Instead of, I think a lot of times now we're going for a documentary kind of feeling in movies and so we want it to feel so real that we have everything look like it wasn't specifically chosen like as if it was like already there like the lighting was already you know what they call available lighting it was just the light that was already there you know <laughs> actors are wearing what people would already be wearing most people like if, if they don't wear makeup they wouldn't be wearing makeup you know so um you know that that a highly constructed world that the classic movies presented is really interesting to me and it's really the kind of the reason I love cinema. Well, I think too that, especially with something like The Love Witch, the the way characters talk, 
feels very much like a classic film. You know, I think people forget how much enunciation and things like the, you know, everybody remembers like the clipped mid-Atlantic accent, but with your films, there's that cadence and that rhythm of the scripting and the way actors say the lines that just feels so different and so old Hollywood too. One of the elements that I love about The Love Witch is not just that it incorporates the aesthetics in such a beautiful way, and it does. Like, I like that you said the presentational, because I think of it as, like, the theatricality of cinema, which is great. Like, if you could make something be bigger and better, why wouldn't you? But I also think in what will tie into some of the films that we'll look at today from Dietrich's career in The Love Witch. It's also the design and especially the lead actress's aesthetic and the high, the beauty and the glamour of it. It's also tied into the characterization. It's part of the story, like how she comes across. So it's not just, I really love you saying that you want these female characters to look like stars, but it's also nodding to the the story element of it. So it's not just this, everyone else is sort of day to day and then there's this one woman and who's, it's part of her essence. It's part of what the engine of the, the whole narrative is, which is really thoughtful. The Love Witch, incidentally, we changed our eligibility rules at Los Angeles Film Festival because I was so furious I couldn't program it since it had already premiered and we had a world premiere requirement at the time. So we literally changed it the next year because I threw such a fit. I just want to say that publicly. Oh, thank you. I didn't know, yeah. I didn't know anything about that. Oh yeah, I was <laughs> I, like, I was like, you guys don't understand. But I say this that I, I encourage listeners to check it out, and I and I love that it's very clear if you watch it, your knowledge of classic cinema and through every department. And I, and I do think so many of the films we'll talk about today take advantage of that, of like how presentation and how Dietrich comes across is, and her awareness of it as well, like what she herself learned about lighting and then pushed for moving forward, which is great. I insist on good lighting myself now, so I very much relate. Well, that brings us to talking about the woman of the hour, so to speak. Anna suggested an episode about Marlena Dietrich. I don't believe we've done a Dietrich movie in the history of this podcast, which is shocking to me because I have several of them in my house and you think I'd have picked one by this point. But Anna, for you, what is it about Dietrich that makes her stand out for you? There's so many things. I mean, you know, I'm talking about my interest in in stars. Well, she was the ultimate star. And it was was interesting because I read a couple of bios of her recently. And what I didn't realize was that some of the stuff that made her so intriguing and so fascinating and incredible, you know, a lot of it was created by Joseph von Sternberg, her director she collaborated with for years. But some of it was really, she had created it um, prior to meeting him in Berlin, especially like the whole thing about cross-dressing. She had this this German husband uh, that was like, his, or maybe he was Austrian, but they, it was he was very, very meticulous in his dress. He was real dandy and he had a very specific tailor he went to that had all of his clothes and accessories perfectly tailored. And she went to his tailor and had a tuxedo made for her in the 1920s. And she would parade around the the Berlin nightclubs wearing this tuxedo. And she she was kind of like a socialite and a partier and an entertainer. And she would try to get attention at these nightclubs. And she did get a lot of attention. And she would perform as a woman and as a man. And she got everyone to fall in love with her. And so she had, she, and you know, she did a few films that were not very remarkable, but she was, she was learning how to be a star. 
in Berlin in the nightclubs. And so she had chops by the time she did her first Hollywood movie. She had a lot, she did actually a lot of films. Uh, they weren't, I guess they weren't very good, but that she, she was learning. She kept honing her persona and especially her image. So that by the time she met Joseph von Sternberg, she was ready to be a star. That was the whole trick of classic Hollywood, right? Was this idea of having the naturalness and the humanity to draw in audiences emotionally, but also having the surface of a glamour icon. And so she cultivated both of those incredibly well. And so she's got like, you know, the, the only other actress I can think of that had quite that combination of glamour and humanity was Joan Crawford. I think Joan Crawford was tipped a little bit more towards the humanity side and Merlene it towards the image, a little more towards the image. But it was amazing how she was able to evoke so much pathos and so much, you know, this energy of, actually, what, uh, the energy of the feminine. She was really trying to create an energy. She and, she and von Sternberg together were creating this energy of, of the ultra, you know, ultimate woman, the, the, the ultra feminine ideal, almost like a Greek, goddess or Greek statue, but through a kind of a contemporary lens of, of something. So she was kind of like, so Garbo was more the image. And then Marlena Dietrich took it forward into talking pictures, into the kind of the inside of the woman. And, you know, I, th I think there was a quote from her, I don't remember the exact quote, but she says about her film work, she said, I didn't do it for the men or for the public or for myself. I did it for the image. And that's the thing I think that, that makes her such a different actress in the grand scheme of things. You brought up Garbo, and it's obvious that there was always this kind of unspoken rivalry between the two, even though Garbo made, worked less than, than Dietrich and, and ended up retiring. You know, the, the emphasis that you could only have kind of one foreign import, you know, so to speak, at a time. And the difference, I think, is that Dietrich, the script she was choosing, the character she was playing. I've seen several Garbo movies. I've seen more Dietrich movies than I think I've seen Garbo movies. But for me, Garbo always has this untouchable quality to her that is kind of hard to get into. You know, she's definitely beautiful, but there's this untouchable quality. If you watch something like Flesh and the Devil, where she's this kind of temptress and there's this back and forth relationship with John Gilbert, it's, it's sexy, but it also feels kind of cold. And maybe I, I'm watching Flesh and the Devil in the wrong way, but with Dietrich, there's an earthiness to her that feels more genuine. Dre, what were you going to bring up? I was just going to add, I, I love how you mentioned that she had established her career in Germany prior to breaking out with an American audience, because I think it represents a couple things that are specific to what built her star persona. One, Berlin at that time was such a hotbed and such an anomaly of a crazy artistic place. Sexuality was more fluid. There was so much experimentation going on. So to be an artist in your sort of teens, early 20s, as she was in that environment and how that would unlock and how it shaped her personal life moving forward, the roles that she took on is huge. I mean, any of us would benefit or be impacted by that. And then the second is, it's like the the, the Malcolm Gladwell of it, your 10,000 hours, you're putting in all this time to hone your craft, to get better at something. And then she came here and was like, and of course, I'm sure the studio accepted it, but probably could have taken different angles. And she was very much a driving force of, no, 
I am a new voice. I have never been seen before. I'm a fresh ingenue. I've certainly not put in all this work before. I am just sheer raw talent and I shall be admired as such. And I think that that's such a perfect example of her shrewd look at her own career. And really, she took the reins in a lot of unexpected ways of, of like, these are the things that I can control and control them I will, which I love. Like the idea of having all these and also her reticence of ever talking about doing any silent work. She's like, no, Garbo did silent work. I'm a talker. I'm an actress. And I, I love that. She's just like, oh, I'll tell you what my story is. Don't tell me what my story is. Yeah, well, I, I mean, to, to start kind of looking at, at her through her work, I'm interested, what was everybody's first Dietrich experience, the first film that you remember either seeing or being blown away by uh, her performance in? Anna, what about, what? we'll start with you. You know, I actually really can't remember because I grew up watching classic movies from the time I was a baby. And so I think I'd seen a lot of Marlene Dietrich movies. Like, I probably saw a few of them before I could talk. <laughs> so I guess I just got to talk about, so when I started to become more conscious, I guess, like when I was a teenager, maybe the first one that had a huge impact on me was The Blonde Venus, you know, because I went and saw it in a cinema instead of on television. Uh, lucky. But also uh, the blue, I think it was, no, I think it was the first one was probably The Blue Angel. So I think The Blue Angel and The Blonde Venus were the first two that I, kind of rediscovered on my own, like as like in high school. I mean, she's insane. I mean, and then I remember just kind of going through, like when I was in high school, just going through all, like like discovering the Scarlet Empress and discovering the insanity of that and just really becoming a fetishist of both Marlene Dietrich and Joseph von Sternberg and just really become, you know, like it was my, it was like my thing. You know, that was me, that was my taste. You know, I was trying to like develop my taste and this was like 100%, 150%, you know, what I loved in, in the world. Brea, what about you? Strangely, I think the first film of hers I saw was Destry Rides Again, which is a very weird way to be introduced to Marlena Dietrich, but it because it was such a rebranding, it's such a different, it, the physicality of it, the look of it, her whole persona in that is tweaked. And when you look at that movie in the full overview of her career, it's even more commendable. Like she made that decades after her kind of Blue Angel introduction to American audiences. It's such a different thing. And she does it so, so well. Like, it's crazy. But I remember going from that to I love um, Shanghai Express. And, and that to me is more like, oh, classic Marlena Dietrich. Like, that's more the sort of essence of her that I think, well, that she did, like, very much. And then in the collaborations with Von Sternberg, but was very much, like, teasing out and building her star persona. So, too, my trajectory with her was sort of the reverse of an American audience's at the time, which is a little funny. But I kind of appreciate that I had more of a working knowledge of maybe the range that she had in her that than you would have if you watched her just from, like, chronological logically what she was allowed to do. For me, it's weird because I went back and, and saw The Blue Angel, which I probably need to watch again because I saw it relatively young in my classic film writing career when I was blogging a lot. And I don't necessarily know if I gave it the proper attention. So I saw I saw The Blue Angel last. I, I think that was the thing is the fact that it's, it is German. 
I, I really didn't pay it the attention that it was due. I, I probably should watch it again. I know I have, I want to say Kino maybe released the original and the American version. So I, I probably have both on me. But for me, I think the film that I actually got back when, back when you could get movies at Costco, old, old movies at least, they had like a, a Marlena Dietrich kind of like spotlight it was four movies and I had gotten that and I binged those for like a week and it had Blonde Venus. It had Golden Earrings, it which is uh, one with her and I believe it's Ray Moland where they play gypsies and they're both in a lot of brown face and Ray Moland is wearing an earring. But it was, it was very interesting to watch because I was just like, okay, this is something that I'm seeing right now. But for me, Blonde Venus, I think, is the movie that really blew me away because it's such a different type of look at womanhood, like like Anna was bringing up. It's the story of a, of a woman who is on, left on her own. It's been a while since I've seen it, but she has a, as a child she has to care for. And Cary Grant's kind of like the smooth-talking villain that is offering her security but she's married to Herbert Marshall, if memory serves. And, you know, she has to provide for her family by essentially loaning her body out and making herself available sexually to this to this guy. And ordinarily, you feel like it's the 1930s. This movie's going to end horribly. There's going to be bodies on the floor. She's going to have to pay significantly. And, you know, it was just, it was different. It's the concept of this is a good woman who is trying to do something good her family and the the decisions that women ultimately have to make to to provide that goes against what society and and their own conscience tells them they should do. But you know, that movie, the thing that's really interesting about that movie is not the story, because there were many pre-code movies with that same kind of story of a woman who had to do different things to survive. And sometimes she had to go into prostitution to support somebody she loved, or she had to do all these things. The really interesting thing about that movie, I think, is the insanity of Marlene Dietrich's star image and what they did with it within the kind of tearjerker women's picture genre. Because what everybody wanted to see from her was, was the stuff that is the most memorable in that movie, which is like her in drag, in a tuxedo, smoking a cigarette, propositioning a woman, (laughs) you know, in a white tuxedo with rhinestones that caught the light, and her behaving like an imperious uh, womanizer herself. So it's kind of like she, it's like what's weird about Cary Grant is he's like this beautiful man who's a rape, but you, you you know, he is maybe a negative character, but in a sense that she also gets to be the beautiful man who's a rake, smoking a cigarette and picking up other woman. So that's what's weird about it. And the only other weird thing about it is, so she performs as a man and a woman as a, and as an animal. So there's that where, where she, um, she's like in a gorilla suit. And the, she's, hot, the hot voodoo number. And she takes the gorilla head off and she does, and she's wearing, and she's got this blonde afro. And she's singing, and the song is so sexual you know that kind of uh movie is what brought on the code you know because it's it's so uh, so hypersexual so it's almost like the housewife was the gorilla suit and she peels it off and she's this creature underneath who's, who's like her real self her real self is the entertainer is the consummate berlin 
and she's mesmerizing the world. So it's almost like this kind of peekaboo thing where you're like, okay, I'm a mild-mannered housewife. I've got a child. I love him. Da, 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 da. And then peel back the curtain. And what's underneath? And so, you know, she fought for that ending. She fought for that ending, I believe. That's what's remarkable about the movie. You know, because Irene Dunn, Dunn did some of these tearjerkers, you know, Helen Twelve Trees. I mean, there were, there were some incredible women's pictures that were about women suffering, doing anything to make ends meet for their poor child. There's that woman, there's that movie Millie with Helen Twelve Trees where she has to become a prostitute, right? And then, and then she later, kind of similar to Madame X, you know, where she has to then deny who she is to save her child later. But this was different. The whole movie was Marlena. It wasn't even the plot. And I think kind of like every movie she did was like that. It was kind of like the spectacle of her was like transcend, was bigger than the movie. And so no matter how big they made the movie, like the Scarlet Empress making all those grotesque gargoyles and these giant fur hats and insane costumes and these incredible sets and this extreme campiness and this luxury and insanity, she was still... You know, it's like no matter how lavish they made it, she was still over and above any lavishness they could create for her. She was still, she didn't let the movie wear her. You know what I mean? She was wearing the movie. Exactly. And A, we don't get enough Helen Twelve Trees mentions on this podcast. Such an underrated actress that is sadly forgotten to time for a lot of classic film fans. So... I'm always happy to get a a Helen Twelve Trees mention in some form. But also, no, you're totally right. I mean, the ending of of Juan Venus, you know, it's kind of, I don't want to say it's a parent trap ending because it's not, but it's the emphasis on, you assume that her and her husband are going to split because of the relationship that she's been having and that she's going to lose her child. And the movie ends if somewhat ambiguously, and I think that's the power of Sternberg, is that he didn't necessarily go for the easy endings, too, that kind of tie up nicely. But the implication is that the two of them, husband and wife, are going to get back together, and, and that's that's how it's going to go. And I don't think people saw that enough, especially with women characters, you know, where a woman can understand that she's made a mistake and come back and be accepted. You know, I think even in, in weepy melodramas, you know, I think of I think of stuff like an affair to remember. You can have that regret of leaving a guy also Cary Grant, but then you have to be like crippled in order to get back together. There has to be this grand upheaval. The other thing though is that she again she was she had all the power. So it's like her decision. I think the ending she was pushing for actually now I remember was that she wanted for her to support them with her show business and be a mother and have him accept accept that. I mean, it was ambiguous, but that's what she wanted. That would have been awesome. And yeah, but it, it kind of was like the men were kind of superfluous. I mean, they didn't really have that much power. I mean, they, they kind of, you know, Herbert Marshall kind of had power over what happened to the child and et cetera. But, you know, once she demonstrated that she could make her own living, so it was only like social roles that made it so like he would like, get custody of the child. But it's kind of like she showed that she could do anything. She could have the child. She could have, she could have her career. She could have everything. So it's show, the movie is mainly showing that a woman can have a child and a career and be a good mother. And not, not you know, it didn't taint her. It's, it didn't make her a bad person to be this sexual person and this entertainer. You know, the other great, this feeling where like, again, like Mae West, you know, casting Cary Grant. In, the, in her movie, she done wrong, and then it, and then Cary Grant is like a non-entity. 
So like Marlena Dietrich and Mae West were so strong. I know he was younger then, but that they just kind of like, they kind of annihilated Cary Grant. I mean, who's, who's powerful enough to do that? to kind of like diminish Cary Grant on the screen. So he's just kind of a, a pretty boy and he has like nothing much to do. You know, it's, it's amazing. And then Mae West was another, I know we're not supposed to be talking about her, but she was another one who developed her entire shtick before she came to Hollywood, you know, wrote her own scripts, called her own shots and had the narratives revolve around her. And that's the other important thing about these classic movies is that the narratives are so often revolving around these great female stars. I, I like you bringing up Mae West in the sense that a lot of Marlena Dietrich's what what makes her stand out so much is her version of how she represents sexuality. And I don't just mean like the fluidness or like the kiss of a woman in Morocco. Like I don't just mean that, but the power that comes with it. A lot of the times in the in the personas that were crafted for female stars, like Mae West, or she crafted herself, there was like sex first. And it was it was just a different. Marlena had a, a enjoyment of the sexual exchange, but there was a, a control to it. Like it was, it felt not clinical, but it felt calculated in a way that other female stars didn't. That it was less like um, she wasn't the sex pot. She wasn't the like ditzy honey blonde of like, oh, I just oh my boobs, oh it's all happening for her. It was this. Oh, yes, I'm a sexual being, and I know for sure you're going to see that and enjoy that, and I'm also these other things. And I find how she comes across with her sexuality is so much more layered than a lot of these women were either allowed or either envisioned for themselves. Like, there's a cerebral quality to what she's doing, even when she's seducing people that you don't see even now. Like, it's 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 yeah. such an anomaly. When you say cerebral, that's, that's so spot on, because I think... I think like because it was crafted partly intellectually as a, as an idea as a concept of what sexuality was like apart from herself which is what Mae West did as well but also I think it's because it was androgynous when you're saying it wasn't like other women it was like she was trying to create this ultimate female sexuality but partly through androgyny is how she did it which is interesting I think Garbo did that as well but I think I think like it was like she there was nothing she was never like surrendering to a man she was always just kind of like taking what she wanted or whom she wanted at the moment she wanted it you know she would be deciding what she wanted but it was never like she was succumbing to anyone she would succumb to them if she wanted to like it was almost she it was her it was always her she never felt like a victim of anybody ever so even when she decided to be masochistic which was in a couple of movies like Morocco, it was like sort of hot and, and kind of very active in a way. No, no, Mae West is, a, you know, having just watched the documentary too, the PBS did about Mae West. I think that really the 1930s can really be summed up by Mae West. Obviously she dominated that brief kind of pre-code era, but I think her and Dietrich are almost like close cousins in that sense of really showing the male powers that be in Hollywood, kind of like the fear of, oh no, this is this is what a, a sexual woman looks like. We have to do something. You know, I, the code was implemented for a variety of different reasons, but you will never get me to not believe that a core reason was like women are out having sex, kissing women, dressing in pants. Like, oh my god, this is horrible. I, I mean, yeah, I think- it mainly, yeah, it was mainly stars like Mae West that, that wrote the code. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't like nudity. It was really just more like right. sexuality. 
Right. And I think that that's what makes Dietrich and, and West movies so, so unique and still so lively. I know Mae West gets a lot of flack for being, you know, dated and easily parodied and imitated, but I mean, her movies are just so, so unique in the sense that they are overt. I mean, you know, Mae West is cheeky, but like, you know what she's talking about and that's accepted and that's okay. And She's never... Well, no, she was, I mean, she was parodying herself. I mean, her whole act was a parody of a kind of a stagey femininity. You know? Yeah. It was and, I, you know, so, and she got that. I mean, she's some of it. I guess she was, she was influenced by Texas Guinan, mm-hmm. and but also by some of the male drag queens as well. Yeah, yeah, it, that's, like, it's, it's kind of, ma- it's kind of mask, you know, and it's kind of like, most of the great forms of theater started with masks, whether it's like Greek mm-hmm. drama or Japanese drama, and I, I kind of think like, introducing the mask into cinema, which is what these women did, whether it was Garbo or Dietrich or Mae West, I mean, the mask, like, they they weren't trying to be really that natural, you know what I mean? Like, there was something natural, but it wasn't really, like, the point wasn't to be natural. So it was very different than, like, an actress, let's say, like, Barbara Stanwyck, really kind of an opposite approach. You know, somebody who was always trying to create a kind of a, like, an ultimate naturalness. So there were degrees in Hollywood, but Marlena was one of those kind of kabuki-like actresses, you know? Exactly. And I think to bring up Morocco, which kind of is the movie that I think a lot of people unfairly bring up when they they think of Marlena. I know I brought it up when I suggested this episode. I was like, oh, we'll just talk about Morocco. And I think a lot of that has to do with how much the placement is, especially for, for queer representation. I know that in like numerous documentaries, Cellular Closet and, and all of those, her role is Amy Jolly is always cited as kind of being this groundbreaking landmark thing. But really, it's just one very brief sequence in the movie where she's dressed up in the the tuxedo and she kisses the woman. And it's, you know, it's all part of this act. And the rest of the movie is about her and this relationship that she has with the Legionnaire played by Gary Cooper. But at the same time, you weren't seeing that in other movies. And I think that that is where queer representation was usually something like, I think of, you know, that scene in, in Wonder Bar where it's the two male met characters dancing or something. It was always presented as kind of a jokey thing, you know, whereas Marlena, you know, that she's literally putting that in the act in the movie. Her character is performing, but she was also had this power to make it seem like, I think that's what scares the Gary Cooper character for a little bit. And she's just like, oh God, like, this woman could be into anybody she could have anybody you know that had to make gary feel inadequate then gary gary cooper was slutting it up with a lot of other women so he was a man whore gary cooper was you know like the most desirable man in hollywood at the time oh yeah so yeah (laughs) and i think that that's the thing when you can have somebody like gary cooper meet Marlena Dietrich in a movie and he starts to question like he feels inadequate it's what you were saying about Cary Grant I mean I think that that's amazing that's amazing because even in other movies with you know someone like Joan Crawford I don't think that she was always the star and her her leading men were always reflective of that I don't think there was ever a sense of equal intimidation like Dietrich had with, with her male colleagues no, I mean, she always stood apart. I mean, no matter what, you, you know, even in her later roles, whether it's stage fright, where she's she's not really, she doesn't have a really huge role, but she's the only 
real female, like more realistic, mousy, sort of um, insecure type of woman. You know, she's just the, she's just a consummate star, consummate professional, no matter what age she was, no matter what role she was playing. She was really like, you know, just just a part or, or even in Touch of Evil, the tiny role she has in Touch of Evil. And, you know, the older I get, the more I appreciate, you know, these actresses as they got older and how they honed their craft. And it got so, so, so meticulous. Joan Crawford was like that, where, you know, first when you're young, you may not like relate so much to some of her roles when she's older, some of these actresses. But then then you can sort of start to see like to really see how their craft got so meticulous. The, the more films they did, it's very interesting. I'm glad, I like that you brought up Stage Fright because it's it's interesting because it's one of, to me, one of the lesser known Hitchcocks, but it's also the, even in like the relative size of their roles, but Marlena Dietrich versus Jane Wyman in that, the idea of star persona and of how you're coming across and clearly part of it's the characters that they're playing. But it's also, I look at, you know, we were talking about how Marlena compared to her male co-stars. Like she is, she's a son. So I I don't, I can't think of a film that she did where like, there's not a two-hander of her and another woman I can think of where they're like equal radiance and power. She, she was what those things revolved around regardless of how much she was in something but that's not to say that and in that or like even a foreign affair like they do lean in this very specific sliver of what she can do like there's this oh she's exotic there's this glamorous like whatever but you know she can do more and you and you see her manipulate that one of my yeah, thi- and, then, and that's a good example because Jean Arthur is an incredibly incredibly strong actress and she blows her out of the water. Like, to me, like, Jean Arthur was in a foreign affair. Like, it's, do you know what I mean? It's just this, no, that's the Marlena Dietrich film. And that one, too, unlike Jane Wyman, like, Jean, like, gets to look good at times. Like, it's not just total frumpness. And there's still just, like, what's coming off of Marlena Dietrich is so palpable. But one of my favorite things, and, and I do love in, when you look at it, and especially if you look at how actresses continue to be treated, like, the older they get, you know, they hit that point of like, you can only play a mother or uh, a teacher or, or someone's wife or whatever. Marlena worked for so, so long in film. And then I loved that she was like, and now I'm going back to stage and I'm just going to do like cabaret things. But her film stuff, she worked for so much longer than expected and she continued to manipulate and, and producers worked well with her too, where she was plugged in. But like, I remember a witness for the prosecution, the idea of how well that harnessed the years of what people thought of of her, of like how her shrewdness, how being a calculated person, how being someone who always felt like a foreigner in Hollywood, regardless of the work she did with the military and everything else. Like to me, the utilizing all of the attributes that come with an actor above and beyond just their talents. Um, yeah, you know what was really interesting about her too was that you, you talk about her extremely long career. She didn't. She refused roles that were degrading or grotesque, unlike some of the other actresses like Joan Crawford or um, Betty Davis, who actually were fine with having like non-glamorous roles or grotesque roles. And, you know, people thought they were more maybe like consummate actresses, but she never wanted, she would never, ever, ever destroy that image she had. But then continue to act and then do kind of grotesque roles that were kind of tearing down glamour 
tearing down femininity, which is a lot, a lot of those movies from the 60s were doing that with the aging stars. And she refused to, to, to participate in that, which is really interesting. Oh, I'm sure someone would have loved to have gotten their hands on her to do a Baby Jane kind of like, Marlena Dietrich gets ugly and had her be just like crazed and make like... You know what? I think she was actually offered the role in Sunset Boulevard. Oh. She might have been. She should have (laughs) been. No, but she wouldn't take a role like that. Yeah. But that also translated to her real life as well. Like, didn't she live in seclusion for the last like 10 or 12 years of her life? 20 years, yeah. She didn't want her aging self to um, differ or combat like her legacy and what people yeah. thought of as her. And again, the control to the very end. That's commitment. You know what she would do, though, is that she was constantly flirting with men. Like she couldn't stop her flirting. So she would make uh, phone calls from her Paris apartment and she would call uh Pretending it wasn't her, pretending, or, or no, 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 people would call, she would pretend that she was her maid, because she was embarrassed to not have a maid. And then she would call people like, uh, I don't know who it was, some of her old friends in Hollywood, like Marie Chevalier or whoever, and, and kind of prank call them, pretending it was somebody else. Or she, or she would flirt outrageously with some of the young stars that were coming up. I know she was in love with Burt Bacharach, who was her arranger in her Las Vegas shows. But, you know, she, she was uh, unbelievable. These are all things I'm willing to try. <laughs> I, will, I will answer my phone as my own maid, no problem. Yes. I'd love, I'd, I'd say, love come to- off him, Marlena, we know it's you. Yeah, and she has that distinctive voice. I would love to talk about sort of what you just segued into. Her personal life and her love life is, uh, to me, it's... It's part of where you get the enigma of this sort of star power of like, oh, she doesn't live like a regular person. She lives like her best life. And her, 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 her greatest loves were Jean Gabin and Yul Brynner, which is interesting. Uh, both foreign men. And, you know, she didn't really like American men. She thought they were too simple. Like she, I think she had this really funny thing she said about John Wayne. I can't remember what it was about him being some sort of a, a hick or something. But um, she she really liked um, cerebral men. She also had a huge crush, crush on Hemingway, who was a good, dear friend of hers. And so she liked men who were, who were extremely mentally active and who read a lot of books and who had a lot of interesting things to say. And she really thought Americans were, were kind of um, simple and, and um, uneducated and illiterate and kind of dumb. <laughs> so this uh, is fair enough. Most you know, boyfriends and things. Yeah. Know, Europe. yeah. Strangely, who I equate her with or who I, I think of now is Tilda Swinton, largely because Tilda Swinton is someone who's been married to an artist for years and years and then also has a boyfriend that lives with them in Scotland. And she's like, yeah, this is how it works. And I think of the very famous time when like Marlena was dating Douglas Fairbanks and went on vacation and rented, I think, a villa with her and Douglas and then her husband and his girlfriend. And just, I I just, I imagine how much people would lose their minds now, let alone then. And her unabashed embracing of the love affair she was having and the shape of them and, and that it seemed just very natural. There was also right. not a like... Yeah, he had, he had a mistress the whole time, you know, so it wasn't like, so they have, they just had that arrangement. 
which I love. They stayed they stayed married until his death, didn't they? Yeah. For like yeah, they fifty did. years. Yeah. yeah. And, and the thing is, that's that's how just that that's just more actually kind of a more traditional European type of marriage because marriages used to all be arranged by the family and they had to do with status and money and, and appearances and then everybody would all just go have their own lead their own lives. <laughs> more of a not not so much of an American puritanical arrangement, but more of an old old world European type of arrangement. She would, she would, there was an actress that she would go, when she was 15, she'd go sit on her window and serenade her and bring her flowers. So she was very, just so full of love and so full of art. And she had to express it somehow. And she ended up doing it through art, mainly through art, but also through love, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Mar- Marlena Dietrich is one of those women that, like, I wish I could live like her because she lived literally her best life. I think she lived everybody's best life in, in a lot of ways. But, I think in terms of personal life, you know, of course, there's been numerous books written about the subject and, you know, it's almost taken on this fetishizing in a way that I'm not, I'm not sure is necessarily always positive, but the Hollywood sewing circle, as she dubbed it in the, the numerous stories about her kind of having this, this cobble of fellow same-sex women who were just, or bisexual lesbian women that were living together, that knew of each other and that they could speak freely and and have relationships and it was kind of like this open secret and I think that that's something that's so fascinating to me because I think they said it consisted of her the wife of Jack Warner Ann Warner Lily Demita who was a one of Errol Flynn's many ex-wives Claudette Colbert Dolores Del Rio and Edith Piaf and I think that that's something so there's something so fascinating about this sense of kinship and sexuality that's that's embraced in the concept of her knowing all these women that they had to be discreet but at the same time there was kind of this mutual respect between that knowledge yeah in some ways when culture was was less transparent people had more freedom to just kind of be themselves you know (laughs) strange how that works out (laughs) the good old days well i have to say this because what to me, what's the most striking about her, there was one biography I read, now I can't remember which one it was, but it was where every, she just kept coming back, rising like a phoenix. Like she just, you know, she would have like these times where she'd like disappear and then she kept coming back. She just kept coming back and coming back. And whenever she'd come back, she'd come back and, and she would be wildly, incredibly, hugely successful. The audience would go nuts, whether it was like coming back for, you know, a second film career or, or coming back, uh, you know, as an entertainer kind of with her records or, or world tours, like everything she did was wildly, insanely, amazingly successful. And I think about her friendship, her great friendship with Noel Coward, and they were very kind of similar in a way. They were both, they were both androgynous and they were both just so incredibly chic in the same type of way, you know? Like they had this kind of continental, gender-bending, witty, geekness. Yeah, they were the future the liberals want. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and and that's the thing. I think that the power that both of them had in their own ways. I mean, I know towards the end of her life, Dietrich, you know, her career pretty much ended in the 70s. She fell off a stage and and broke her thigh and, and spent a lot of her time bedridden after that. But she was still able to pick up a phone and rack up a $3,000 phone bill talking to Ronald Reagan or Gorbachev. Like she still had the power to be able to do that. And I think that that's also something that's just fascinating about certain people in 
the entertainment field that they have this power, despite the fact that Reagan's case, her lifestyle was totally not what he would have been down for, but she was still able to, to have that, that ability to gain respect from people that unfortunately probably didn't respect her life choices. You know what it was? It's like, they were both entertainers and, you know, she was the consummate professional, but also she knew a lot of people. She was incredibly social. And I think that that, you know, she also was, you know, like a politician. So a politician is similar to an actor in the sense that your, your career really depends on you being able to get along with people and being able to impress people, not only impress your audience on the screen, but also like get a lot of people to love you, like create allies in your life in order to get these more of these film parts and, and more, you know, all the opportunities you get are from people loving you and wanting to help you. Your success isn't just, just determined by your audience. It's also determined by your peers and colleagues. So some of these people that just kept going and going and going, like Joan Crawford or Melanie Dietrich, they really, really knew how to get people to fall in love with them. Like it was a real art and not just sexually, but just as people. And, you know, so like Noel Coward and Marlene Dietrich had this deep, deep, deep love for each other that wasn't sexual, but it was so human and it was so deep and they would cry on each other's shoulder about their love affairs. And it was something that was something so deeply human. And sometimes I think, you know, people are angry with movie stars and they think, you know, they're jealous of them. They think they don't deserve to be where they are. But I think people do, do deserve to be where they are because they worked. You have to work so hard just to get anywhere in this life. You have to be so resilient. You have to be so tough, not just talented. And hardly anything is luck. I mean, there's a little bit of luck, but so much of it is how much you can get people to love you and trust you and support you over and over and over again as you climb that ladder. Yeah, yeah. And is there anything else we want to touch on before we start to wind it down, Drea? Well, this I could talk about her for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> I, exactly. <laughs> I'm so excited that we we got to talk about this because you know we don't do we don't do a lot of kind of star based episodes because I always feel like we're short shrifting something, you know, uh, some movie oh, or everybody an should, element. Yeah, everybody should see Rancho Notorious, and everybody yes. should Song of Songs. Two two films of hers that. They're underrated, I think. Yeah, Drea, are there underrated ones that you think are worth checking out? Um, I don't know if they'd be considered underrated. Like, as I said, like it or not, Shanghai Express will always have a soft spot in my heart. And honestly, I think everyone should see Destry Rides again for the full range. For the fight scenes alone, if you think that Marlena Dietrich couldn't be an Avenger, she could do it all. Um, <laughs> yeah. For me, I'd say I remember really liking, and again, I have not watched all of these uh, in a while, so somebody could tell me they're horrible, but I'm throwing them out anyway. I remember liking Angel a lot from 1937. I love Angel. Angel's Yay! <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so good. And the, all the stuff we're talking about is so... Is that Lubitsch? Is that one Lubitsch? Because I think um, it is. Anyway, me, um, incredible. It is Lubitsch, yes. Yeah, incredible. incredible it's got the Lubitsch touch, is what it's mm. like. You know, and again, one more, just one more thing I want to say, which is that... Yeah. Which is that I think one reason she appeals so strongly to women is that all women, when they just to be women, unless you're going to try to be androgynous or try to like not be that thing called quote unquote woman, are wearing a mask and are playing a role and have a persona that is woman that they can either use or not use. And so her shifting in and out 
of that role so naturally and so easily just feels so liberating. It just feels like she, she's playing with it. She's having fun with it. She, when she uses it, it's for herself because she wants to. When she discards it, it's because she wants to discard and adopt another kind of fun persona, maybe like persona of a man or, or, or something else. And it's just like this, this kind of like playfulness that makes it seem like uh, being a woman makes it so much fun. And it makes it really great and fantastic to be a woman, no matter what the hardships and the sexism and anything you endure. She so much transcends that and makes it feel just so incredible to be a woman. Uh, yeah, I definitely, I agree with all of that. And I also recommend people read, I know her daughter, Maria Riva, wrote a biography of her mother that I've read. And that's amazing. It talks a lot about Marlena's growing up in, in wartime. And it's just, it's a really great look at her life outside of entertainment that is is definitely worth reading. I think the book that I would recommend, now I just, I think this is the one I would recommend. It's Dietrich by Stephen Bach. This Ooh, is one, I haven't read that one. You know, because Maria um, had a lot of issues with her mother, which are really in the book. And the book is like sort of a quasi-mommy dearest. And it's in many, many sections that we're trying to portray her in the worst possible light. So Stephen Cook's yeah. book has all the same information, but it's not so biased, so angrily biased against her. Uh, you've given me another book to add to my ever-expanding celebrity yeah. biography pile. It's much more objective. It's a much more objective book. It has all the same facts. Yay! I have another book to read. <laughs> I'm so excited we got to do this episode. I, I feel like now, hopefully, we've enticed more people to check out more Dietrich movies because she's awesome, and we should be celebrating more women like her especially in old Hollywood, I think, which usually gets a bad rap for being this time of, you know, people say, oh, women didn't have good roles. They were, they were in these indentured studio contracts. It was so horrible for women. And yes, actresses had problems, much like I think actresses now have problems. But, you know, I think Dietrich and Joan Crawford. I think it's, a very, I think it's a very ignorant view because I think that yeah. the star system that created actresses as stars, women have never, ever, ever had it so good. And also, and creating all the narratives around women and all the glamour and the and the, yeah. and the, and the, and the publicity. If, if somebody wanted to be a star and the star system could create them as a star, no actress has ever had a better life than the. I know. I I don't know. I don't think any Hollywood story. You know, I always I give my once an episode shout out to Esther Williams. I mean, the studio system gave her a career working in films based around the fact that she was a swimmer and I, you know, Sonia Henney being an ice skater, you know, you can't do that now. We've tried to make sports stars actors doesn't work nowadays, but I think in the studio system, the fact that they could write films around your talents and, and work with that for but women, that, especially. But writing, yeah. But, but also writing, writing films around female talents. Yeah. yeah. Half of the films, more than half of the films, are written around female stars. And yes. that's a really, really significant difference from the films today. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And that's why we keep talking about them every time on this podcast. So I feel I feel privileged to get to talk about this amazing woman as well as all the other women that we've gotten to talk about over over the life of this show. But Anna, thank you so much for for joining us on the podcast today. It has been 
So much fun. I'm so happy you suggested this topic. For fans who want to learn more about you and your work, where can they reach you on social media? Where can they find out about what you're doing? Feel free to plug whatever you want. Okay, well, I'm I'm on Twitter a lot. It's the only, you know, social media platform I really use. And my handle there is at Miss Anna Biller. And I'm, you know, I'm trying to get a, a film off the ground. It's been very difficult. I'm doing a, a movie called Bluebeard. It's based on all those classic women's pictures about, you know, like Gaslight and Rebecca and Caught and all those movies about a, a woman with a, with a husband who may or may not be one trying to kill her. <laughs> and it's going to be very gothic, you know, kind of in a, t- a Technicolor style and kind of very Technicolor Hitchcock style, you know, lots of uh, candelabra and running from castles at night and, um, you know, lots of gowns and, and very exciting. It's a very exciting script, but, um, but I'm still working on trying actually to get that financed. And it's uh, so I've gone pretty close, but you know, then this pandemic hit, and so then yeah. all the financing and all the plans and everything was just like. <laughs> uh, and I need that's that's why I keep telling people on on Twitter is I need to make twenty twenty one needs to get here so we can have all the amazing movies, including yours, that I keep reading about that have not been filming uh, or getting made. But I recommend Anna's Twitter or Anna's Twitter, excuse me, because. You tweet a ton about classic cinema, and you've given me so many recommendations. I know you've also got, if memory serves, you made a lengthy list on Letterboxd, too, of, of movies. I made, I made a list of Bluebeard movies that inspired my script. Would you yes, say? yes. And the, the amount of movies that you have talked about that have gotten me so excited. I know you mentioned Bluebeard's Eighth Wife, which I just got on Blu-ray. So I'm watching, I'm excited to watch that purely because you've recommended it. So your your t- social media is an invaluable resource for anybody that wants to go down the rabbit hole of awesome stuff. That's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. As always, if you have thoughts on Anna's films, The Love Witch, Marlena Dietrich, you can email them to us directly at ticklishbiz. That's B-I-Z at gmail.com. You can always follow uh, the podcast on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz. You can follow me and my other projects on Twitter as well at journeys underscore film. Drea Clark, where are you on the interwebs? I am also on Twitter at the Drea Clark. And as you know, Kristen, I also co-host a contemporary film podcast called Who Shot Ya? If people want to check out my blather about a whole other range (laughs) of films. Yes, you have a great crew there as well, who also love classic films. So They do. Yes. Yep. And of course, you can listen to the podcast wherever you get your podcast, Apple, Station Radio, Player FM. We are on Spotify as well. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, help us out. Leave us a rating and a review because those things apparently matter. And if you want to do more to help continue our road to 100, hopefully maybe get us to 200 episodes down the way and you want to kick a couple dollars to us you can visit us over at patreon.com slash ticklish biz people who are patrons get special pins they get access to all episodes 48 hours early and you get a whole bunch of other podcasts that we do we have our bonus show based on a true podcast where william viviani and i discuss how hollywood talks about themselves one of our more memorable episodes we just did one on the Lindsay lohan 2012 Liz and Dick, which was a lot of fun. We also 
made the grand claim that if we get 100 subscribers to the Patreon, we will do the infamous Haunting of series of films. Yes, you can hear William Bibiani and I talk about the Haunting of Sharon Tate and the Haunting of Nicole Brown Simpson. So tell your friends we want to get to 100 subscribers so that we can talk about those movies. And we also have a bunch of bonus episodes that I'm recording and there's a lot of stuff going on there. So if you want more of me blathering, and as well as a bunch of other guests, you can head over to patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. We will be back with another episode on our road to 100 and other special guests. And hopefully Sam will be back. Till then. Bye.